Exodus chapter 34. Um, this actually is God's description of himself. This is God. This is not a man describing God. This is not a man's perception of God. This is God describing himself to Moses after he had given to him the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to really um, open this text up and try to preach from it, but it, it is the catalyst for what I want to share with you this morning. Exodus 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I started a series last Sunday and just kind of did an introductory, introductory message to that about keeping it between the ditches. Um, keeping it between the ditches means that we know and understand, believe and apply what God's Word says. However, there are times that understanding God's Word becomes difficult for us. We can read it, we can believe it, but our understanding of some of the things that are presented in God's Word is limited. Secret things belonging to God. He's revealed to us a bunch about Himself um, but there's a lot of things that we don't fully understand. The Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 11 talked about the depth of the, of the riches and the mercies and the wisdom of God. They're beyond our capability of completely finding out and understanding. Um, we can read it and believe it and apply it to our lives even when we don't necessarily understand it. There are a thousand illustrations you could look around you and see that you do that with a lot of things already. Um, you know that they work, you believe that they work, you trust that they work, but you don't understand how they work. And so a lot of the doctrines in the Bible, and um, the more that I've looked at this, the more I've found this to be true, there are a lot of doctrines in the Bible that are paradoxical in their, in their presentation. Um, they, are, they are laid out alongside each other, and they almost look like they contradict each other. They almost look like they stand in opposition to one another, but in reality they are complementing each other. And we talked about last week the whole idea of philosophy is that, that you present a thesis and then you give somebody else the opportunity to present an antithesis and then you, you pull those two concepts together and form a synthesis of those thoughts. And philosophy is just trying to understand how this universe is working and the systems and, and everything within the universe. And so... Um, that's kind of what the Bible does in its doctrine. It creates tensions. It presents to us different subjects, and then we have a tension between these subjects. And, 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 and I don't think that we're necessarily supposed to resolve all of those tensions. In fact, when we try to resolve them and reconcile them sometimes, we wind up in the ditch. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that we're supposed to reconcile and resolve all the tensions that the Bible presents to us, but we are to learn to trust them 
and live between those tensions because, you know, I don't think there's anybody in this world that understands everything this book says, period. I don't care how wise they are, how articulate they are, how many years of college they got, how many degrees they have, how many years they've been in ministry. I just don't believe any of us um, have it all figured out. Um, I think our God's too big for that. I think His will is too big for that. Um, as long as we keep Christ first and foremost at the center of our doctrine and our beliefs and our understanding of God, I think we'll be all right. But we not we don't have it all figured out. None of us do. And the more that I have fellowship with other pastors who have different interpretations of Scripture than I do, the more I respect them and understand that they've got Bible that backs up what they believe too. And one of us is wrong. But I know this, they love Jesus and I see the Spirit of Christ in them and I see the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in their life. So I know that they're my brother and I know they believe the book and I know they have faith. And we just come on different, we come down on different sides. I'm not trying to resolve those tensions. I'm not trying to correct them what I think is error. I've learned to fellowship with them and receive them as brothers um, in Christ. So we have, we have, an oppor- we have uh, the responsibility, I believe, if we're going to honor God and His Word, we've got to take it at face value as literally as we can, even when we don't understand how it all fits together. And two of the biggest tensions that I find in God's Word are in relation to His nature and character. Two of the biggest tensions that I see in God's Word are in relation to who He is, who, ha- who He has declared Himself um, to be. Um, and I would say to you, if we don't know who God is, there's very little hope of us ever knowing and doing His will. If we, if we misrepresent the nature and character of God in our thought processes, if we misrepresent who God has declared Himself to be, there is very little hope that we'll ever really fully be in the center of doing His will in our lives. And so the the, the tension that I see in God's word regarding the nature and character of God is this. Is God holy or is God love? Is God holy or is God love? And I would say to you that God is both. And I would also say to you, Um, That There's not a contradiction between those things, even though there is a tension between them. And I would also say to you that God is not more holy than God is loving, nor is God more loving than He is holy. I believe that God is equally as holy as He is loving. These two are not in competition with one another, even though they are in tension with each other. And we we find that sometimes difficult to comprehend. But, but if we wind up in the ditch on either one of these, if we wind up in the ditch that God is more holy than He is loving, um, then, 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 then that is going to translate into our li- lives that we're going to wind up being judgmental and legalistic and get in that ditch that thinks that if we don't, if we don't dot every I and cross every T, then God's going to condemn us and judge us. We're never going to have any real assurance of salvation if we err in that ditch. We're always going to wonder if we've got it and if we don't, and if God's going to condemn us or if God's going to um, give us a pass. Uh, and on the other side of that, if we err on that ditch of God is loving, then, then we're going to wind up in a lawless liberalism that anything goes. We can live our life any way that we want to, and God's always going to be pleased with us and always going to accept us. That's, both of those are ditches. And both of them revolve around that concept of is God holy or is God loving? And we, even if we can't reconcile this, we have to believe this, that God is both 
in equal measure. God is holy. That's a hard word to describe. It's a hard word to define. But here's what I think it believes scripturally. When you say that God is holy, I believe that it means that He is separate, that He is distinct, that there is no one like Him. He is set apart in that regard, that He is spiritually and morally perfect and pure, that He has never been tainted by sin, not in thought, not in word, not in deed, and He never will be. He's holy, which means also that He is worthy of our worship. Let me give you some scripture to back that up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And, and you can see in this verse that there's implications in God being holy and our being holy. Because it is written, 1 Peter 1, 16 says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's Peter actually quoting a couple of times. There's a several verses in Leviticus that God says the, whole, the, uh, the same thing to, to the nation of Israel. I want you to be holy. Because my nature and my character is holy. I want you to walk in holiness so that the world can see me in you. So there's implications for our life in this that God is holy. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, which is the song um, that Israel sang after they crossed across the Red Sea. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. The answer to that is no one. And God is holy, separated, distinct, perfect, and pure, and powerful in every sense of the word. Psalm chapter 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. When you think about the holiness of God, that's who He is. That's who the Scripture declares Him to be. That's who He has declared Himself to be. That's what He has called us to be. But flowing out of God's holiness, when you think about the holy character of God, coming out of His holiness is His truth, absolute truth, His righteousness, His, His justice, His judgment, His wrath. That is what comes out of, that is what flows out of God being holy. You can find every one of those attributes of God in the Word. His truth, His righteousness, His justice, His judgment, his, even His wrath. All of them are rooted and grounded in His holy nature and character. He can't be anything but truthful. Um, he can't be anything but righteous. He can't be anything but just, which requires Him to be also a judge who sentences His wrath on those that walk in unrighteousness. What that does for us, that, the implication for that in our lives is that we bow in His presence in reverence and in awe. It moves us. It, it, what flows out of who He is and being holy manifests itself in our life in our awe of Him, in our fear of Him, which is what bows us at His feet to worship and submit our, ourselves to Him. Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who shall not fear thee? O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy, for thy judgments are made manifest. Now that, is, that passage of scripture is directly before God begins to pour out the seven bowls of wrath on a wicked and rebellious world. And the writer, 
the writer says, Who shall not fear thee, because you are holy? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah got a glimpse into heaven, and those angels that surround the throne of God day and night say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So listen, a God who is not holy is a God who is not feared. A God who is not feared is a God who is not worshipped. A God who is not worshipped is a God who is not trusted. A God who is not trusted is a God who is not obeyed. God is holy. We can't compromise on God's holiness. We got to declare that. And listen to me, we're living in a culture where everybody wants to talk about the love of God, nobody wants to talk about the holiness of God. We cannot compromise on the holiness of God because that's what the Bible declares. That's who the Bible declares that he is. We have to believe that, we have to apply that, and we have to declare that to the world. And I will say this, if God was only holy, we would be only hopeless. If God was nothing but holy, not one person in this room would be saved today. If you, if, if you read the, the, the Old Testament prophet, and Habakkuk had a, had a hard time understanding what God was doing in the nation of Israel and how he was going to use Babylon to do it. Habakkuk had a hard time wrapping his mind around that. He had some questions for God, but he also knew the nature and character of God. In, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, he said, he, Speaking of God, you art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. That is a holy God. And if that's all God was, we wouldn't stand a chance. But we can't compromise on His holiness. We've got to know that He is holy, but we also got to know that He is love. That's another hard word to define, especially when it comes to God. But I was, let me start by saying this. It's more than a feeling. Who sang that, Ario Speedwagon? It is. It's more than a feeling. I ain't going to sing to you, but I like Ario Speedwagon too. Boston, Alvin, thank you. Alvin is up. I, I thought it was, listen to me. Although it's not a feeling, it is an affection. There, there's a feeling associated with love. But there's also a devotion and an attachment to it. And, and I, this is, uh, you look it up in the Strong's Concordance and the definition of God's love is agape, and it's a very long definition. And there's, there's Strong's Concordance took a great deal of time trying to show us what that looks like in the Word and God's interaction with people. But this is the best summary that I can give you, that it is an affection, a devotion, a concern, and regard for mankind. Even though we're sinful. God is still love. I was thinking about this verse this morning. God commended his love toward us in that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You can, can you see in that verse how you see God's holiness and his love being just poured out to us? What flows out of God's love are all those attributes about God that we love and embrace. Now, we can love and embrace His holiness as well, but 
his affection, his devotion, his, his attachment, his concern, his regard. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And, and not only is God love, the seventh verse, that sa- it says love is of God. And it says if you don't know God's love for you, then you can't ever manifest God's love to other people. The love that God has called us to have for each other is of God. Because God is love. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee to me. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So God is love. And flowing out of God's love is his mercy. Flowing out of God's love is His grace. Flowing out of God's love is His patience. Flowing out of God's love is His forgiveness. Flowing out of God's love is His goodness. All of those attributes of God are flowing from the love that God has for us. And what does that do, what does that do in our life? What kind of response does that produce in us? It, 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 it produces our response of faith. When we know that God loves us, we begin to trust God. And, um, and we yield ourselves to Him in devotion. Because God is love, here we are, trusting in you, believing in you, devoting ourselves to your will for our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. First John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. His love for us moved us and loved Him. His holiness brought the conviction of sin. His holiness brought fear. And His love delivered us to faith and and devotion. Listen, a God who is not loving cannot be loved. A God who is not loving cannot be loved. And a God who cannot be loved cannot be trusted. And a God that cannot be trusted will never be worshipped. We can't compromise on the fact that God is love. We can't minimize God's love. We've got to believe it. We need to be grateful for it. And we need to declare it for the world. But, but listen to me very carefully because this is the world we're living in. If God is only loving, then we will soon become lawless. If we redefine what love means and we redefine the nature and character of God, our whole culture, our lives will become lawless. You let a child who believes that his parents will never discipline him, will never correct him for anything that he ever does. There are no boundaries. There are no rules. My parent just loves me, loves me, loves me, will never spank me, will never correct me, will that child will become as lawless and rebellious and unmanageable as any child that you have ever seen. You can't just have one side of that. You can't just have one attribute or you'll reap the consequences of that. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. It's the love of God that compels us, motivates us to walk in obedience to Him. So, God is holy and God is love. Those are the two paradoxes that walk hand in hand through the Scripture. Let me run through some Scripture real fast and I'm going to close it. 80, Psalm 8510, listen to these. These are, these are the two paradoxes of God's nature 
laid out in the same passage of Scripture, mercy and truth are met. God is merciful, but God is also truthful. God is righteous, but God is also peace. This is a description of God. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in our God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, the last part of that verse says, There is no God beside me. This is God speaking for himself. There is no God else beside me, a just God. There is his holiness and a Savior. There is his love. There is none beside me. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, that passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he retaineth not his anger forever. There's his holiness. Because he delighteth in mercy. There's his love. Now that's the Old Testament. But the New Testament is full of declarations of the holiness of God and the love of God as well. In fact, that, that holiness and love, I believe, was perfectly manifested in his sending of his son into a sinful world. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this about Jesus. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. There's his love and truth. There's his holiness manifested to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 26, talking about, what God, again, what God did for us in Christ. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that Jesus was completely righteous and completely holy and completely sinless in His life, that He might be just. He is just in the eyes of God, but He is also the justifier of him that believeth in Christ. The just is His holiness. The justifier is His love. So I just want you to see this because literally everything we're going to unpack from this flows out of this nature and character of God being a God, a holy God and a loving God. One without the other won't work. You can't have one without the other. If you try to preach one without the other, if you try to believe one without the other, if you try to apply one without the other, you're going to wind up in a ditch somewhere. You'll wind up in the ditch of legalism, judgmentalism. You'll be hateful. You'll be condescending. You'll never be sure of your salvation. Um, you'll think God is a tyrant sitting upon the throne. That's a ditch. But if you get in the other side and forget the holiness of God, you'll become lawless. You'll become unfruitful. You'll become liberal. You'll be of no use to God's kingdom. Now, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into those ditches later on. I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going next week. I'm trying to unpack this in a way that makes some rational, reasonable sense to kind of start at the top and just kind of broaden it out a little bit. I really want to talk about God's sovereignty and man's free will, especially in regards to salvation. How that, how, how that God does have an elect people, but those elect people also have a responsibility to respond to God. And, and those things look like contradictions. And we fight each other over those things. But I think you can present both of them from a biblical 
perspective. And we understand somewhere in the middle of that, God's election and man's responsibility and free will is the truth that we need to walk out in our lives. Well, let me just close with this. The, the, the best visual and actual proof that God is holy and God is love. Besides what the Word says, and the Word says it all through it. It's just laced in and out. Sometimes the Word of God will emphasize His holiness, and sometimes it will emphasize its love. It never does those in contradiction to each other. It always presents them in, in tension with one another, but both true, both believable. But besides the Word of God itself being an expression of God's holy love, and you've heard me say this a hundred thousand times probably since I've been here 27 years. But the best picture and visual proof you will ever have of God's holy love is His only begotten Son hanging between heaven and earth on an old rugged cross. If you want to know how much God hates sin, He crucified it, the Bible says it was his own determinate counsel and will to crucify him because of the world's sin. That's a holy God. But, but at the, by the same token, if you want to know how much God loves the sinner, God sent his son. To save us. There's not a more beautiful picture of the holy love of God than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to call your mind back to that day that he died there. Two men, one on his right hand and one on his left. Who initially both railed against him. And challenged him to come down from the cross. But one of those men, in the context of that moment where he was about to draw his final breath alongside this man on the middle cross, rebuked his friend opposite him, his co-sinner, and said, What we receive today, we receive because we deserve it. But this man, has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus as a repentant sinner and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The song in our hymn book called The Love of God has this as part of its, I think it's his second stanza right at the end of it. It says, the guilty pair bowed down with care. That's that pair of sinners. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned for his sin. And let me tell you what God did for the thief on the cross that day. He'll do for any person sitting in this room this morning. He did it for me.
God is holy and God is love. I don't have to reconcile those. I believe they work in tension in my life to keep me between the ditches. To help me understand more fully the nature and character of my God. And as long as I trust that and believe that, I don't ever have to understand it. I can walk in that path that he had me to walk. As our musicians come, let's stand together. Lord, I'm grateful for your word that declares to us by your own voice your nature and character. We're not left to ourselves to define who you are. We don't have to fashion a God of our own choosing, nor should we. When we do so, we're always guilty of idolatry. When we create an image of God that is only holy, we've created a false caricature of you and we'll misrepresent you every time. On the other hand, if we create a God in our mind that is only loving, that's a false caricature as well. And we'll just wind up in the ditch on the other side. God, I'm thankful this morning how you have revealed yourself to us. A God that's morally perfect and pure. No sin. Not in thought, not in word, not in deed. Never have, never will. But I'm also thankful that you love us. In spite of our sin. In our sin. Enough to redeem us and pardon us. Just have your will and your way in this time of invitation. If there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, you've revealed yourself to us in Him more clearly than any other way. And I pray this morning, somebody here doesn't know Him, that today would be their day of salvation. Do what you want to do and we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.